over a thousand generations of Jedi Knights and Guardians of Peace, Justice, Welcome back to A People's History of the Old Republic, episode 6.6, A Well-Regulated Militia. Last time, we looked at the Exile's past trauma as she returned to Duxun for the first time in a decade and caught up with our old friend Candorous Ordo, a.k.a. Mandalore the Preserver. Now, we talk about the importance of the Onderon Civil War and defend Dantooine from exchange mercs in the Battle of Kunda. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey, and there's always a bit of truth in legends. Uh, before we get started, i got a little bit of podcast business. So we've got two episodes probably dropping, maybe dropping today, um, but uh, we've definitely, we're definitely going to have a The Rise of Skywalker um, review episode uh, up at some point, uh, maybe today, maybe this weekend, or maybe later, just depending on everything. Um Kelsey and I both saw the movie last night and uh, yeah, it'll have all the spoilers. So don't listen until you're ready. Um, But before we move on, there is one special late breaking bit of news that leads us to a Canon alert, which is Canon alert 35. We haven't done one in a while. The rise of Skywalker visual dictionary released uh, today, which is December 20th, 2019 and written by Pablo Hidalgo canonizes Revan by name. The Visual Dictionary lists the names of some notable legions of the Red Sith Troopers that appear in the film. The legions are given nicknames that appear to be names of Sith Lords past. The third legion is known as the Revan Legion. Other legions are named after Darth's Endedu, Tenebrus, Desilus, Tanis, and Phobos. Desilus and Phobos were both introduced as Sith Lords during the time of the Old Republic in the game video game Force Unleashed. We will discuss each one of those, each one of them eventually. Darth Endedu was a Sith Lord before 5000 BBY, who is referenced numerous times in Legends, and who we should really circle back to at some point. Darth Tenebrous was the Sith Master to Darth Plagueis, whose tragedy so famously appears in Revenge of the Sith. And finally, Darth Tanis is a new one. Again, Revan has been made canon by reference in the new Visual Dictionary for Episode 9. Right now, we have no idea when canon Revan lived, what they did, or their gender. And just because the name is referenced here doesn't mean we know the dark side ending of Knights of the Old Republic is canon or anything like that. It just means that he was a Dark Lord at some point. In Legends, the Sith revered Darth Revan even though he was redeemed. His teachings uh, even formed the basis for the Rule of Two. Uh, but regardless, that is this is very exciting. Um, because, yeah, we've uh, we've been looking forward to this for, <laughs> for a while. Uh, I think it's also promising for the future of Star Wars that they're willing to canonize bits of lore in the past in new things um very neat i'm sure we will talk more about the nature of canon when we record our rise of skywalker reaction um but Mm -hmm. if you are interested in a in the story of the old republic far far before the start or end of the skywalker saga we are ready to jump back in with knights of the old republic 2 part 6 onderon and Dantooine. Last time, we kept narrowly avoiding a return to Onderon after finishing up on Nar Shaddaa. Surik met with Jedi Master Zez Kyal, who answered some of her questions about the reasoning behind her exile. The Iban Hawk also added two new companions, a Miraluka ex-Sith apprentice named Visas Mar, and our old friend Candorous Ordo, now known as Mandalore the Preserver. Then it was on to the inner rim world of Onderon, but we got sidetracked when some jerk named Colonel Tobin decided to start the Onderon Civil War by firing on the Ebon Hawk and a bunch of Republic ships. The companions were able to safely land on Duxun, Onderon's demon moon. There they found out that the Mandalorians are rebuilding in secret, and Surik did enough good deeds to earn a trip to Onderon in Mandalore's shuttle. At the very end, Kraya did a masterful, if tactless, job of explaining why she fucking hates Mandalore and his people so much. 
when we pick the game back up, you'd think we would be taking Mandalore shuttle from Daxun to Onron, but there's a problem. Sith assassins have tracked the companions to the Mandalorian outpost, decloaking in the midst of the Mandalorians for a surprise attack. Surik and her companions defend the base from Sith attacks and have to kill all the intruders so that the Mandalorian rebuild and their alliance with the exile remains secret. This part isn't too tough because the Mandalorians can take a beating and hold their own. After mowing down the Sith, Mandalore says they should get to Onderon immediately. A cutscene then begins showing the Mandalorian shuttle's descent to Onderon, and we get our first glimpse of Queen Talia and we see Jedi Master Kavar is advising her. The two are conversing in the royal palace in Aziz when Talia learns that Vaklu and Tobin had attacked the ships waiting to pass through the blockade. Kavar wants them to continue with their plan of drawing Vaklu and his shadowy supporters out of hiding. The queen grudgingly agrees, though she is concerned that support will permanently swing to Vaklu because of the plan. Before we get any deeper into the narrative on Onderon, we should talk a little bit more about the Onderon Civil War. We should note that while Queen Talia is obviously a monarch, and monarchies are inherently bad, at least in my opinion, the alternative is far worse. General Vaklu is an authoritarian military strongman who wants to isolate Onderon, playing on the world's distrust of both non-humans and outsiders. In short, he's a really bad guy who's being supported by the Sith and generally wants to turn Onderon into an isolated backwater again. Thus, despite the fact that monarchies are evil and should be done away with, they're still preferable to military dictatorships. That being said, we will never forgive this game for making us side with a monarchy and making that the light side choice. Regardless, the Onderon Civil War began a few days earlier above the world when Vaklu's men under the command of General Tobin fired upon the Ebon Hawk and other ships. However, the war is rooted in controversies that stretch back long before 3951 BBY. The catalyst for the Civil War about secession was, unsurprisingly, Onderon's entry into the Galactic Republic in 4002, and their distrust of off-worlders off-worlders can be traced back farther into the reign of Frieden Nad circa 4400. By 3951, about half of the populace had grown disenchanted with Onderon's relationship with the Republic. They believed, probably correctly, that the Republic took far more of the planet's resources than it gave back in membership benefits. Unfortunately, this message got twisted by their space xenophobia and space racism, and they didn't even want to help fellow worlds recover. This group believed believed too many soldiers from Onderon had died protecting a Republic that did nothing and objected to resources and beasts from the world being used to aid Telos IV. Why they would want to keep the beasts that they built Isis to keep out is anyone's guess. Into this mounting tension stepped Onderon's top military commander and decorated war hero, General Vaklu. Unbeknownst to his supporters, Vaklu was allied with the Sith to provide military resources. Meanwhile, Queen Talia, Vaklu's cousin, leads a royalist faction that aims to keep Onderon aligned with the Republic with the Council of Jedi Master Kavar. Queen Talia was young when she came into power and is descended from the royal line of Queen Galia and Oran Kira, who were installed by the Jedi at the end of the Beast Wars in 4000 BBY. Incidentally, she's also a direct matrilineal descendant of Freedon Nad, though his dark side hold on Onderon was broken permanently after the Freedon Nad uprising was put down in 3998. For a time, Talia and Vaklu kept their disagreements confined to the palace and the ruling council of elders, but they eventually spilled out. Months before Surik's arrival, Vaklu and Talia's negotiations broke down and the general instituted the blockade of Onderon. Vaklu began to openly lead his secessionist faction, but his forces were bolstered by the Sith. It seems like Kavar suspected something by this time, but didn't know the full extent or didn't appear to. After the brief space battle, General Vaklu declared martial law across the planet, and that's when his true color started to shine through. After the first battle of the Onderon Civil War above the planet, Vaklu also spread disinformation throughout Isis, claiming that the Ebon Hawk and the Republic fired first, 
and that the Iban Hawk was a capital ship. Vaklu passed an emergency law giving his forces wide latitude to commit illegal searches and seizures and to punish Republic sympathizers in the military and police. These edicts allowed Vaklu's supporters to round up journalists, politicians, and others who might side with Talia. If the prisoners didn't talk, they were tortured and executed a policy that drove many of Vaklu's supporters over to Queen Talia. General Vaklu eventually revealed to his lieutenants that he was prepared to commit a regicide against his cousin, instigate a palace coup, secede from the Republic, declare himself dictator, and openly ally with the Sith. These revelations caused some of Vaklu's top officers, like Captain Galisi, to abandon his cause. When the companions arrive, open warfare hasn't yet broken out on the streets of Isis, but it will soon enough. Character Profile Jedi Master Kavar A human male from an unknown world, Kavar has been a Jedi Guardian, had been a Jedi Guardian, and may have fought in the Great Sith War, though that is unconfirmed. Like most of the Jedi we encounter in Knights of the Old Republic 2, very little is known of Kavar's life before the game began. We know that he informally trained Mitra Surik in her youth and might have been her Jedi Master if things had gone differently. Kavar then left to fight with Revan in the earliest in the earliest skirmishes of the Mandalorian war, Wars before abandoning that fight and returning to the neutrality of the Jedi Council. In fact, Candorus Ordo later says that the Mandalorians believe that Kavar would lead the Jedi against them before Revan took the honor for himself. Such was Kavar's renown, though Candorus also noted that if Kavar led the Jedi instead of Revan, the Mandalorians would have won the war. Despite understanding the devastation and misery caused by the Mandalorians, Kavar returned to the Council's way of thinking early in the wars with the Republic. This will be a recurring theme we see from Kavar, or from the Masters, as he, much like Jedi Master Zeskael, seems receptive to the Exile's side of the story by the, by the time they meet for the first time. However, his tune will change when the council reconvenes on Dantooine and he will fall back into the stodgy conservative views espoused by council members like Brooke Lamar. By 3959, Kavar had earned a place in the Jedi High Council and he presided over the trial of Mitra Surik along with the four other masters. Kavar concurred with the council's judgment exiling Surik, but after she left the chamber, he cryptically noted that, quote, the choice of one was the choice of all, end quote. Afterward, Kavar fought in the Jedi Civil War against Darth Revan and Darth Malak and was presumed dead after one of the battles. Kavar survived and remained on the Jedi Council until its dissolution in 3952, following the annihilation of Qatar. As Kavar had seen more war than the rest of the Council combined and was considered their greatest strategist, the Council agreed to his plan of going into hiding in an attempt to draw the Sith out. Kavar went into hiding on Onderon and became a shadow advisor to Queen Talia, where Surik would find him in 3951. Kavar is a master of Jarkai, the art of dual-wielding lightsabers. With the exception of Korriban, Onderon was like all the planets we visit in this game. We will have to return a second time before the end. This time around, we will get a feel for the city, pick up a bunch of side questions, generally stir up trouble before briefly getting to meet with Kavar. That meeting will be interrupted by General Vaklu's forces, however, and the companions will have to flee to Daxun while Kavar goes back to the palace. If you see a trend forming around these meetings with Jedi Masters, congratulations. If you don't see the trend, it's probably our fault. Anyway, when Surik, Bowder, and Mandalore disembark from the shuttle, the Aziz spaceport is somewhat empty given recent events and the months-long blockade. The first person we meet is the port administrator, and he's got our coveted Starport visa, which we are hard to come by and to allow the holder to depart through the blockade. The Starport visas are a running side quest on Onderon as five people will request them and only two can be given away. With the outbreak of the Civil War, Starport visas are no longer produced or given out, though Mandalore has been able to acquire one for Surik via the black market. Surik has to keep one for herself and her companions to get in and out. The five people in search of a visa are scattered around Isis and include a stranded Duro freighter captain, a stranded mother with two young children named Turlin, 
a shady merchant, an exchange operative, and a republic spy named Zart. We'll spoil it for you now and say that we know one of the visas went to Zart because of a random reference in the complete encyclopedia. Zart is actually the first one to spell out what secession from of Onderon would mean. While the Civil War and secession movement are currently confined to Onderon, Zart has discovered that other systems will join them in leaving the Republic. This would massively destabilize the inner rim travel trade and probably the final nail in the coffin of the Republic. That's why we're so concerned about the civil war on this provincial backwater. We'll give the other visa to Turlin because we're nice like that and also because her husband, who was on the Council of Elders, was killed after an attempted assassination of Vaklu. If you come at the king, you better not miss. Before we continue, we should probably take time to catch up on some of these companion loyalty missions. Sarek has a whole slew of individuals waiting to be trained in the ways of the Force, retrained from the Sithways, or who just need to offload some emotional baggage. We won't do them all today, of course, but we need to start chipping away at Nazaridia Jedi, so we'll turn to Baudur. The uh, Zabrak military engineer has a long pass with Sarek, going all the way back to the Battle of Malachor V in 3960. When he and Sirik talk, Baldur confesses that he only joined the Mandalorian Wars to get revenge on the invaders who had taken out many Iridonian colonies upon invading the Republic. Baldur hated the Mandalorians for their crimes and immediately joined the Republic Navy, not out of patriotism or a need to protect the vulnerable, but to avenge the deaths of his people. Revenge is a fine motivator for regular folk, but a Jedi must not be bound or motivated by it, at least not completely. This is the crux of Baudur's loyalty side quest, as he must let go of his hatred for the Mandalorians in, in order to begin reaching his potential as a Jedi Guardian. The game gives the players clues regarding their influence with other characters, but... Um, <clears throat> Potential Force users will comment about the Exile's calming influence and serene nature in the face of seemingly insurmountable odds. Baldur will say that Sirik has, has caused him to have a changed outlook on life and realize, and realize that his anger against the Mandalorians had been festering for more than a decade. He used his hatred... He used his hatred to become and became one of the greatest military general military engineers ever, but also built his coup de grace, the mass shadow generator. And if I use that inappropriately, uh, you know, just don't worry about it. I also don't speak a lick of French, so we're just just going to skip over that pronunciation too. Baudir still blames himself for all the deaths, saying that both Sirik and Revan were acting from a place of protection in the first place, so they couldn't be responsible. That's some incredibly twisted logic, but at least Baudir has tried to make amends and begins to lighten some of his load by speaking with Sirik. She begins training Baldur as a Jedi guardian by teaching him to recognize the spark of the force he's always had and how to begin controlling it. At this point, lightsabers become easier to find or construct, and so Baudur will be the first of the so-called Lost Jedi to receive a lightsaber. We'll have to teach them how to build their own on the fly. Lost Jedi is a term that Kraya coins later in the game to refer to the true future leaders of the Jedi Order who will rebuild it. Technically, all the Jedi we meet in this game are part of the Lost Jedi, but they can't rebuild the Order if they haven't survived the game now, can they? As the companions move through the landing platform, they see one of the famed Beast Riders who has domesticated Boma's change. The Bomas are waiting, awaiting transportation to Telos IV in aid, to aid in restoration and will be joined by other beasts from Andoran, Duxun, and even Ethor as they help to reestablish a functioning ecosystem. The Beast Rider gives us some background on his people's history before one of the Bomas escapes, giving Surik a chance to show off the Beast Mind trick she learned. Beast Rider apologizes for losing control of his mounts and gives Surik some credits in return for her trouble. Aziz is smaller than you'd think the only city on the planet should be, but that's more to the game and graphics limitations than anything else. Regardless, the real reason we're on Onderon is to meet with Jedi Master Kavar, and the only person who can help us with that is a doctor who's only in it for the money named 
Dagon Ghent. Dagon will readily admit he's only in the doctor business for the credits, but at least he doesn't hide behind a veneer of charitability. He and Mandalor seem to be real friends, or at least what passes for friends with Candorus. Ghent was a Mandalorian for much of his early life, but he left the nomadic warrior clans following Malachor V. The problem is that Ghent isn't in his small practice because he's been arrested by Vaglu's police for the murder of a military captain named Sulio a few days earlier. Ghent didn't do it because he has an ironclad alibi and was close to Sulio. It turns out that Vaklu probably ordered the hit on Sulio because of her loyalty to Queen Talia, though that's not explicitly stated. To clear Dagon Ghent's name, the companions must investigate clues, witnesses, and areas around Isa's for exculpatory evidence. Most of it is found in and around Dagon's clinic and at the local cantina. Dagon is well known in Isa's and has numerous friends, including the victim Sulio, Captain Rikin, and a Pazak player named Nico. The investigation begins with Captain Rikin, who says that Dagon was arrested after numerous cantina patrons reported hearing a heated argument between the doctor and Sulio. As Surik heads toward the cantina, the investigation is sidetracked by a political demonstration in the center of the merchant quarter. An outspoken supporter of General Vaklu's cause named Pon Lar is whipping some citizens into a frenzy, hoping to attack a nearby guard station loyal to Queen Talia. This is Surik's first chance to side with Talia, and she is able to persuade Pon Lar to calm down before he starts a riot that will kill many innocent bystanders and children. Also, Ponlar and the citizens are unarmed, so it would be a bloodbath anyway. After Surik meets with Kavar, Ponlar will start the riot anyway, and the exile must choose which side to support. After this detour, the investigation of Sulio's murder continues in the cantina. As Nico explains it, he, Sulio, and Gint are all good friends, and they trade playful, sarcastic banter when the drinking starts. Other sentients did not comprehend this use of irony and human senses of humor, so they believe that Sulio and Gint were fighting when they were indeed close friends. Now, admittedly, this seems like a flimsy excuse, but two other key pieces of evidence back it up. The first is the Republic spy Zarta, who provides an alibi saying that he and Gint were meeting together at the time of Sulio's murder. The other piece of evidence came from the memory core of a protocol serving droid named S0D3, who was killed on the night of the murder after finding Sulio's body. S0D3 was shot and destroyed before its body was sold to a local vendor. Surik retrieved the head from the vendor and worked with a Twi'lek slicer named Kif to find video of the shooter that exculpated Gint. With an alibi and reliable video evidence, the companions return to Captain Riken. The video only shows the droid being shot from a strange angle. We only see the shooter's legs, but we're not complaining because Gent's arrest was always politically motivated. After reviewing the evidence, Captain Riken had no choice but to free Dagon Gent, but was initially stopped by a major loyal to Vaklu. To drive home how much of a sham arrest this was, the major tries to obstruct Gent's release. However, the overwhelming evidence and Surik's loud insistence proved too much, causing the Major to relent and free Dagon. The doctor meets Surik, Mandalore, and Baudur at his clinic. He is very thankful for the exile's aid and promises to set up a meeting with Jedi Master Kavar, but only if his encrypted holodisks are retrieved from a local gang of beast riders who looted his office during his incarceration. It's not that... Dagon isn't grateful, it's just that the holodisks have the info needed to contact Kavar. The Beast Rider gang is led by a human female named Bakal, and they're currently drinking in the cantina. Talking with Bakal and mentioning the holodisks is a surefire way to start a fight. Incidentally, we never find out who actually killed Sulio, though it is hinted that Vaklu ordered the murder of Sulio just like he did the of other royalist captains like Rikin and Galisi. It's likely that Bakal is the killer because she's the only person in Aziz wearing leg armor that matches what we see in the video. That doesn't matter because all these fools brought normal swords to a lightsaber duel in close quarters and Bakal's gang is wiped out. 
Cantina violence is a time-honored tradition in Star Wars, and we wouldn't deprive you of that. This is also where Surik gives Zart a starport visa, and the Republic spy also reveals that he served under Surik at the Battle of Daguerre Minor in 3963. It was one of the early string of losses the Republic suffered before the Battle of Duro in 3962. Say goodbye to Zart, he's going to flee the planet to warn the Republic of danger. The companions return to Dagon's clinic, and from there, he will initiate the conversation with Kavar. We get a cutscene showing Kavar and Queen Talia. The Jedi Master received word from Dagon that the Jedi Exile was in town looking for a meeting. Talia believes the meeting is a trap, and that's reasonable suspicion, but Kavar has felt a disturbance in the Force, and it must be investigated. In the cantina, Surik awaits as Kavar arrives. It's clear that Surik was hurt by Kavar's condemnation at her trial, which isn't surprising given their past together. Kavar was Surik's informal master for a time on Dantooine, but she never became his formal Padawan, though the two remained close. Surik asks Kavar why he would betray her at the trial, but he says the times were too uncertain, with some believing that Surik was one of Revan's spies. All of the Jedi who accompanied Revan had fallen to the dark side or been killed, but then there's Surik who returned to face the council. Clearly, Kavar believes that Surik didn't fall to the dark side, or at least we, that's what he sounds like. Kavar decides to come clean with his former protege, saying she deserves an explanation before being interrupted by Colonel Tobin and a squad of jackbooted thugs. Tobin is ready to make amends for his failure to secure Surik and the Ibn Hawk, but he's going to be disappointed. In order to save himself from capture and protect Talia, Kavar uses the force to incapacitate Tobin's men before promising to contact Surik ASAP and then fleeing. A dark side exile assisting Vaklu will be arrested and roughed up to sell that they put up a fight. But Mitra Surik simply fought through Tobin's men, escaping the cantina to avoid being arrested and tortured by Vaklu's forces. Nico went off to warn Dagan Gant that the big crackdown on Talia's supporters was coming. If you even try to stick around the cantina after fighting the secessionists, the Bith owner will yell at you to leave for causing too much trouble. Honestly, we can't blame him. Outside, we see that Vaklu's troops have cracked down on everything during the Exiles meeting with, Kav- with Kavar. The companions are forced to fight a running battle across the streets of Isis as Vaklu's military and police forces have sent many of Talia's supporters into hiding and killed others. Surik, Mandalore, and Bowder push through Vaklu's supporters and make it to the shuttle. Candrus helpfully notes that we can't return to Onderon until we get word from Kavar. With that, the group returns to Duxun and finds Atenrand is now in the Mando camp, having fully repaired the Ebon Hawk. There's nothing much left to do on Duxun, so Surik uses the Mandalorian guide, who acts as a fast travel beacon, to return directly to her ship without having to traverse the jungle once again. The addition of the fast travel feature in KOTOR 2 is so helpful. Back at the Hawk, Surik punches the coordinates for Dantooine into the nav computer, and Rand pilots the ship into space before jumping to hyperspace bound for the outer rim. The trip will give us time to begin training Mira in the ways of the Force. Now, technically, this should probably happen on Nar Shaddaa because Mira hates being cooped up on the ship, and Surik can teach her to listen to the Force on Nar Shaddaa, much as Kraya had taught Surik. However, we have to hit these companion dialogues when we can, and it can be done on the ship anyway, so let's go. At first, Surik doesn't recognize Mira's force sensitivity. Nar Shaddaa tends to hide force signatures in Mira, distrustful by nature after a lifetime of heartache, inadvertently hit it with her strong feelings. On Nar Shaddaa, Mira will echo Han Solo, saying she doesn't believe in the force, it's just a bunch of Jedi sleight of hand. Later, however, Mira describes the energy of life on Nar Shaddaa, and Surik recognizes that the Mando bounty hunter can feel the natural flow of the Force around and through everything. After Surik gets enough influence, Mira will let her guard down for once and ask for help and training in the ways of the Force. Mira is tired of feeling powerless to help and wants to be in control of some part of her life. 
Mitra is happy to help awakening the force within Mira. But there's a problem. The rush of sensation being connected to all the universe overwhelms Mira and causes her excruciating pain. To combat this, the exile teaches Mira some basic meditation and balance techniques. Mira is now a Jedi Sentinel and gets her very own lightsaber to goof off with. This is also the time when the exile this is also about the time when the exile is reaching level 15 in the game, and that can only mean one thing, prestige classes. You may dimly recall that we began that when we began the game, that we began the game as a Jedi Consular because, frankly, it's the best starting class and allows us to spam Force Storm against groups of enemies due to the large well of Force points the player receives. Now you might think the best strategy is to prestige from Consular to Jedi Master, or to the Jedi Master or Sith Lord classes because they sound cool as hell. And you'd be right, they do sound cool as hell, but the problem is that they don't do much for the player because their force points are already so high. Instead, the better choice is to start as a Consular and then prestige to Jedi Weapon Master or Sith Marauder classes. These add bonuses to weapon damage, bonus damage, resistance, increased health, and new feats. This more than makes up for the Consular's initial weapon damage penalty and adds a number of additional features. All of this is presented in-game as a conversation with Kreia. The Master has seen her apprentice's power in the Force, and now it's time to come out of the shadows. Kreia says, Sarek must train harder, try to learn the deeper mysteries of the Force, and face her enemies out in the open. By combining the Jedi Consular's ability to spam Force powers with the Jedi Weapon Master's superior lightsaber, superior lightsaber and do wielding feats, the Exile is now ready for almost anything. With that over, let's bring HK47 back online, making him our tenth companion. HK-47 has been stored in a locker since the beginning of the game, but after Cirque finds all four missing parts, she can bring the assassination droid back online. HK is very upset and embarrassed because his memory and assassination protocols are missing. He only faintly remembers the Ebon Hawk and doesn't even remember doesn't remember Candrus or even T3 and 4. Don't worry, his memories will be restored after some time and a few repairs, and he will be able to tell us about working with Revan and why he cleaned house at Malachor 5. HK-47 is also distraught to learn that the HK-50 droids exist, and he's determined to find their factory. Character Ketchup, HK-47. Following the Battle of Rakata Prime in 3956, the most lovable assassination droid settled in with Revan, Bastila Shan, and T3M4 on Coruscant. However, HK-47 retained the murderous impulses of his base programming and soon began itching to assassinate some of Revan's meatbag enemies. Later, in 3954, Revan's memories or his past began to return and he was determined to lead an expedition to the Unknown Regions to face the growing Sith threat that was rising. HK-47 wanted to accompany Revan on this journey and would have been particularly helpful, but the droid was left on Coruscant to protect Bastila, who had recently become pregnant. Before Revan departed, he wiped HK-47's memory core of everything that had happened since his construction around 3959. Revan knew that if HK-47 had any recollection, he would follow his master to the ends of the galaxy and beyond. Bastila left HK-47 with the Jedi Council for a short time after the memory wipe to see if his murderous rages would be tempered. Bastila's attempt to moderate HK-47's bloodlust failed. Despite the memory wipe and Chan's refusal to give up on Revan's location, HK-47 still left in search of his former master. During his attempt to find Revan, a terrible and unknown fate befell HK, and he was dismembered, his parts scattered across the galaxy. That would seem to be the end for HK-47, but his old frenemy, T3, stumbled upon the pieces when attempting to return from Nathema after spending three years repairing the Ebon Hawk. T3 placed HK-47's constituent parts in a storage locker on the ship, but couldn't be repaired at the same at the time because he was still missing several components. In 3951, at the beginning of the events of KOTOR 2, Mitra Surak took ownership of the Ebon Hawk, found the four parts needed to repair HK-47, and brought the rust-colored droid back online. 
HK-47 sees the many HK-50 droids that the companions encounter to be abominations and poor imitations of his perfection. Later in the game, HK-47 will be the one to give us the nitty-gritty details on Revan's strategy to use the mass shadow generator to call millions of his enemies, including Republic soldiers and Jedi, at Malachor 5. We are on the way to Dantooine, the third planet the Exile visits. We are searching for Vruk Lamar, Master Vruk Lamar, and trying to rebuild the Jedi Order. After Dantooine, we will travel to Korriban in search of Master Lana Vash, but end up fighting Darth Sion instead. Fortunately, Dantooine and Korriban are the two smallest worlds in the game, and their combined length is shorter than Duxun and Onderon. After... After Korriban, we'll briefly discuss M478, the droid planet that was cut before tying up some loose ends and side quests by re- revisiting Citadel Station Narshida. That's where Act 2 ends, and then we move on to Act 3, which is Endgame. Once the Ebon Hawk arrives back on Duxun and we finish up those couple of quests, the team will have to split in two. Sirik, Kreia, and another companion will go to Onderon to help Kavar and Talia against Vaklu's coup while the other group of three will travel deep deep into the jungle wilderness in search of a sith camp at the mausoleum of freed ned then it's on to the battle of telos 4 to face darth nihilus and atrus before ending where it all began on malachor 5 we are swiftly moving toward the end of kotor 2 even if it may not seem like it you might have noticed that underon and duxun had very little in the way of cut content that's likely because they were these two locations were some of the first to be finished there are a couple of minor changes that we revisit when we revisit Andron and Duxun but most of those are only if the XL supports Vaklu comparatively Dantooine has a large amount of cut content though most of it comes on the second visit Korriban has a few cuts but it's mostly intact and short as intended Back in the game, the Ebonhawk dro- drops out of hyperspace in the northern reaches of the outer rim above Dantooine, a beautiful, peaceful world that was bombarded by the Sith during the Jedi Civil War in an attempt to further demoralize the Jedi and hide any evidence of the Rakatan Temple. By that time, Revan had already found the star map and was well on his way to finding the Star Forge. That's cold comfort for Dantooine and her residents who endured a brutal Sith occupation and an ongoing economic depression. Location Ketchup Dantooine The last time we were on Dantooine was in 3956 during the events of KOTOR 1. Revan had only recently completed his retraining as a Jedi Padawan and started the search for the Starforge when the Sith fleet dropped out of hyperspace above the bucolic Outer Rim world. The Jedi Enclave Council suspected such an attack might occur and had previously relocated its learning materials to the Secret Academy on Telos IV. Just before the Sith fleet arrived, the Jedi Masters received a warning through the Force and were able to flee with some Jedi and citizens. But because of Dantooine's lack of technology or centralized cities, no large-scale evacuation could be completed. Thus, thousands died when Darth Malak's fleet barrages the planet, the Jedi Exclave, and most settlements of any size, including the old Rakatan ruins, were blown apart during the bombing of Dantooine. The Jedi Enclave, which was built by the venerable Jedi Master Vodosiosk Bas around 4017 BBY, had stood for generations and taught hundreds of Padawans. Now it's a crumbling facade and a tomb to a hun- to 100 of Jedi. Of all the Jedi Revan meets on Dantooine, the only ones who definitely escaped were Vruk Lamar, Tsar Lestin, Dorak, Disra Lur Jada, and Vandar Toker. Sadly, we'll never know the fate of the woman who had sex with her protocol droid, you may recall from KOTOR 1. Following the bombardment, the Sith occupied the world, ruling it with an iron fist. The occupation only lasted until just after the collapse of the Sith Empire in 3955, but the damage was already done. The bombardment killed farming on the planet after damaging so much of the world's surface grasslands, meaning the world's economy was mostly based on taking a cut from any salvage found by the Enclave. Between 3955 and 3951, the few survivors tried to to rebuild around a Republic administration building named Kunda, the former 
Matale family home, but no republic was forthcoming for obvious reasons. In 3952, Jedi Master Vruklamar returned to Dantooine to hide following Qatar. By 3951, Republic Administrator Tirana Adair is barely holding things together against the Exchange and their mercenaries. As the Jedi Enclave is nothing more than a smoldering ruin and a haven for treasure hunters, the Ebon Hawk touches down at Kunda. The map here is mostly the hilly plains surrounding Kunda, the administrative building, the Crystal Cave, and the decimated enclave. Dantooine is so sparsely populated, the XL doesn't even get harassed for docking fees. The dock has does have one interesting NPC to offer, a battered protocol droid with malfunctioning memory storage because it hasn't received maintenance in almost five years. Once the droid is repaired, it immediately recognizes Surik as a Jedi. The droid apparently worked at the er, yeah, the droid apparently worked at the Jedi Enclave for many years going back to Surik's time as a Padawan. In appreciation for the repair, the droid plays a hollow recording of Masters Vandar Toker and Vruklamar discussing Surik. This is probably the only look we get at Master Toker in the entire game, but at least he was taking it for the exile against Vruk's normal cheerful self. Vruk is ratting out Surik, who was arguing with his Padawan, and Surik's master refuses to discipline her. Vandar placates Lamar, but says that a force prodigy like Surik should be allowed to flourish, and her innate talent for leading and bonding with others should be encouraged. Lamar says that Surik just has a lust for power and is a mediocre Jedi who will fall to the dark side. We assume that this is just how Vruk talks about everyone. As the short recording ends, the droid apologizes, but we got to see some background on the Jedi Masters and got to see Vruk being his crotchety old ad- asshole self again. Ah, memories. A quick trip. A quick trip around Kunda shows that most residents hate the Jedi for obvious reasons, like the Jedi failing to protect them from the Sith and being the cause of the bombardment in the first place. Kunda isn't much. A single, uh, about three-story building surrounded by a few homes and rolling grasslands. This is where Administrator Tarina Adair tries to keep the people safe and defend against the exchange, which wants to use Dantooine as a hub for smuggling operations and is bringing in mercenaries to help. Much like Queen Talia on Onderon, Administrator Adair has a Jedi Master advising and protecting her. Adair and Lamar were friends before the bombardment and she continued to hold them in high esteem despite the residents who distrusted them. Adair appears to be the only leader in Dantooine who survived the Sith occupation and has done her absolute best to hold off the exchange. Vruk's return to the world was fortuitous as it gave Adair a stalwart, if very cranky, ally. If the exchange overruns Kunda and begins using Dantooine as a smuggling outpost, the world will surely wither and die, allowing the crime syndicate to spread their reach and further destabilize the Republic. When Surik meets Adair, the administrator grants permission to explore the ruined enclave in exchange for doing side quest junk around Kunda. Adair also says that Vruk has been investigating increased mercenary activity, but hasn't been heard from in a few days, so we'll have to find him too. The mercs are led by a real piece of work named Azgul. He's a human male who served as a Sith commando under Darth Malak during the Jedi Civil War but became a hired gun after the end of the war. In 3951, Azkul was hired by the exchange to undermine the small government on Dantooine. Azkul had a large group of mercs on Dantooine, at least four times more than the Kunda militia, but he didn't account for the presence of Jedi. Just before Surak arrived, Azkul had his people capture Vruk Lamar and bring him to the Crystal Cave where they made their camp. Little did the mercs or anyone else know that Vruk had allowed himself to be taken prisoner to find out more about Azkul. No one knew of Vruk's plan, not even Adair, yet he's kind of a jerk when Sirik rescues him from the prison cell after defeating a number of mercenaries and far too many of the spider-like kinrath that make the cave their home. Lamar complains that Sirik ruined his undercover sting operation, and now open war between the Kunda militia and Azkul's mercenaries. 
How any of that could have been prevented is a mystery, but Rook's nothing if not a nonsensical hard-ass. Just like that, you've caught up on almost everything that happened on Dantooine. Character catch-up, Jedi Master Vruk Lamar. When we last left Vruk Lamar in 3956, he was at the Jedi Enclave on Dantooine, probably chiding Revan for something. When we meet him again in 3951, he's still on Dantooine and he's definitely going to be nagging Surik about something. The intervening five years were unkind to Lamar, much as they were to the entire Jedi Order. Lamar co- continued to mentor younglings and Padawans on Dantooine until it was devastated by the Sith in 3956. Lamar and other Jedi Masters escaped Dantooine and continued to try and lead the Diminishing Order until 3952. However, Vruk Lamar, much like Atris, Zezkael, Lanavash, and Kavar, didn't attend the Conclave on Katar and was thus spared death at the hands of Darth Nihilus. But you have to wonder why these why weren't these masters on Qatar in the first place? Jedi conclaves are not events that are usually skipped. It's enough to make you wonder if they were hiding because they knew it would be a bloodbath, but did nothing to try and stop it, or if they were just scared. Previously, Zezkael seemed to imply that he had gone into hiding before Qatar and they knew something was up. Obviously, Atris is at fault for this, as she's the one who leaked the info about Qatar to the Sith in the first place, but the other four seem to suffer from rank cowardice or were just very unlucky. Or very lucky, rather. It just seems weird that most of the Jedi who survived were all masters who sat on the High Council. Regardless, in 3952, Lamar went into hiding on Dantooine in the ruins of the old Jedi Enclave. Though Dantooine has few sentient beings, it still swirls with the Force due to all the flora and fauna, so it made hiding there easier, much like Yoda on Dagobah. In 3951, Master Lamar uh, had begun working with Administrator Adair to stabilize the world and protect its inhabitants from mercenaries. Prior to Surik's arrival on Dantooine, Vruk Lamar allowed himself to be captured by some of the mercenaries in order to gain intel on their operations. There are, of course, other things to see around Dantooine. If Mandalore is in your squad, he can find some Mandalorians to bring into the fold. A group of Mandos like, led by a guy named Isak hang out near the entrance to the Jedi Enclave. Isak will openly challenge Kandris to defend the title of Mandalore in single combat, a slight that Ordo doesn't take lightly. Isak claimed he had received the message about Daxun, but ignored it because he didn't deem Kandris worthy to hold the title. Not surprisingly, Isak talked a lot of shit and then died real fast when it came time to duel. Following this display, Isak's men submitted to Kandris as the true Mandalore and agreed to depart for Duxun to aid in the rebuild. This gains influence with Mandalore, and we will find another group on Nar Shaddaa to recruit. While we're at the Enclave, Surik might as well explore the Enclave sublevel, which is said to be the only part with any good salvage left. It's also inhabited by a number of vicious insectoid creatures called Lagreeks. The Lagreeks kept all but the most daring or foolish treasure hunters at bay, but not Surik and her companions. Before they ventured deeper, there's a cut sequence between the Exile and Cryo while looking at the ruins. Cryo mentions the wound in the Force caused by the deaths of so many Jedi that resides all around the Jedi Enclave. This is where we begin to find out more about those wounds in the Force and how they cause the Force to be blinded in those areas, making Force users harder to detect. The Jedi Masters will never learn, but this is the reason they couldn't locate Darth Nihilus, because he was a walking wound. Sirik was also a walking wound in the Force, but didn't present as a blank-sucking nullity like Nihilus did, because she manifested her use differently through the light side of the Force. Inside the Enclave sublevel, There's very little outside of killing a bunch of bugs and raiding some rooms. The exile meets a salvager named Joran, who sold a bad moisture evaporator to a resident named Sulru, but we'll deal with that when we get back to the surface. There's also the archives where a man named Mikal is waiting. Character profile. Uh... Michael, the disciple. I, I'm going with Mike. I don't know. McCall, Michael, Mickle, M-I-C-A-L. That's what it is. I'm just going to spell it out like, like it's a little kid from now on. Time to introduce the most wholesome and naive boy you'll ever meet. 
Uh, Michael is idealistic in the extreme about both the Jedi and Republic, despite, well, everything that's happened. He's a little ray of hope that we all love to roll our eyes at because we're far too above it, but sometimes a little naive hope is a good thing. But only sometimes. We can't go all sincere. We've got to keep up appearances, after all. Uh, Michael, known as the Disciple Endgame, was born in 3976, possibly on a midrim colony world, and was given to the Jedi Enclave on Dantooine at a young age. As a youngling, McCall developed a schoolboy crush on Mitra Surik after witnessing her teach a class of younglings to hear the Force sing and others. He hoped that Surik would choose him as her Padawan, but by the time he came of age, uh, Michael was one of hundreds of younglings left without a master due to the Mandalorian Wars. The Jedi Order was shrinking too fast to keep up and properly train the influx of Force-sensitive children. So many fell by the wayside or were enticed by the dark side. Michael left the Order and joined the Republic Navy following the trial and exile of Mitra Surik in 3959, which gave him severe doubts about the future of the Jedi. Following the Jedi Civil War, Michael began hunting Jedi artifacts and lure for the Republic, and in 3951, he learned that one of the few Jedi left after Qatar, Brooke Lamar, had gone into hiding on Dantooine, and he followed. Michael was one of the few in the galaxy who still understood enough to maintain the distinction between Jedi and Sith. He's even the one uh, to explain that it was called that it was called the Jedi Civil War because most galactic citizens had no way to really distinguish between the groups. While we see the Jedi and Sith in spotlight, much of the galaxy just sees feuding members of some old dusty religion with different colored laser swords. When, Michael's, when Michael meets Surik in the crumbling Jedi Enclave, he will hide his past from her and use an assumed name, the Disciple. He claims to be a simple antiquarian searching the ruins. Eventually, Surik will train Michael into a Jedi Consular, and he'll become a Jedi Master and a historian who preserves the legacy of the Jedi for future generations. Michael is Surik's 11th and final companion, and the one who provides most of the background about the Mandalorian Wars, the Jedi Civil War, and the fall of the Jedi Order. Michael notes that most of the treasures of the Enclave were removed, likely by the Jedi, though he doesn't know that they were moved to the Academy on Telos IV. Michael posits it was done to protect the knowledge about the whereabouts of secret Jedi Academies and holdouts throughout the galaxy. The Sith took some when the occupation ended, but most were already moved by then. But Michael is still seeking these ancient pieces of lore, and he's been able to locate some on his travels. The universe is in danger of forgetting the teachings of Master Arkajeth and the adventures of Jolie Bindo. Hell, even the Jedi don't remember the destruction of the Khan drift by the Sith in 3996 that led to the scouring of Ossus and the Galactic Firestorm. Ossus, which had been the homeworld of the Jedi for more than 21,000 years, from about 25,200 until 3996, was largely forgotten by all but the likes of Kraya and Michael. But it's worse than that. The Jedi seem to have actively quit trying in any meaningful sense. They retreated from the Republic and their duties to new and existing Force sensitives, which, Michael says, may have occurred in part because the galaxy turned on them. While the Jedi can't be overly concerned with public opinion, it's a bad idea to become a cloistered order that sits in an ivory tower and only helps the galaxy when it suits them. Especially when fallen members of said cloistered order are responsible for three galaxy-spanning wars in less than 50 years. The Jedi are supposed to be different from regular people because they have incredible galaxy-changing power and, as such, are called to a higher purpose. This will, almost without fail, lead to some civilians to fear what they do not understand, but Michael argues quite persuasively that the Jedi make it worse. Quote, they are supposed to train students responsibly and well, so mistakes of the past are not repeated. Yet all I saw was ignorance and arrogance and what those seeds created in the Republic. It is difficult to follow the Jedi Code when so few others have, end quote. Maybe it's time to look at the Jedi Code and ask if that's the source of the problem. 
Though Michael does does know an impressive amount about the Jedi, he's also wrong on some key facts about Revan, at least as it pertains to the Jedi Civil War. Michael believes that Revan was convinced to turn on the Sith through a willing change of heart and not after being mind-wiped by the Enclave Council. Despite being wrong about this, Michael is right about everything else, so it's likely there to show the paucity of available information. Michael is also the first one to spell out why all these seemingly random worlds are interconnected and vital to the survival of the Republic. We've discussed it before, but Michael is the one who ex- who explains how it all fits together in the game. Dantooine must be preserved because Republic Admiralty believes the Jedi must exist to safeguard the Republic and as a vital countermeasure against the Sith. This likely refers to Admiral Carthonassi. Dantooine must also be protected because allowing the exchange to use the distant outposts as a base for smuggling operations would greatly expand their criminal syndicate, something the Republic can't afford. Michael also explains that Tidus 4 is a test case to see if decimated worlds can be made habitable once again. If the Telos restoration project fails, the Republic won't have the resources to restart the project elsewhere. It will just shut down, damning dozens of worlds to an eternity as uninhabitable wastelands. If Onderon... If Onderon secedes, it will spur other worlds to also break free from the Republic, destabilizing it over numerous sectors. If any one of these fails, the Republic will fall. Luckily, we've got the chance to help the situation on Onderon during the upcoming battle. Oh my god. Luckily, we've got the chance to help the situation on Dantooine during the upcoming Battle of Kunda. But first, Michael has to explain why the Jedi are necessary despite all their flaws. Quote, the Jedi are a symbol. As much damage as their reputation took during the Sith War and the Jedi Civil War, there are still many, there are still, there are still many to whom they serve as an example. Plus, there have been times in the past where a single Jedi has been enough to change the face of a world or a galaxy. I suppose I still believe that I suppose I still believe that might be possible. Despite the betrayal of many of the Jedi against the Republic, I must concede that as figureheads they serve a vital role. End quote. As heartfelt and true as that was, we've got a battle to plan. You might be wondering why we've ignored the side quests we usually discuss, and that's because we're about to do them all in record time, as most involve fortifying Kunda in some way. Besides, we already covered the Crystal Cave where Vruk Lamar was being held. Prior to finding Lamar, the exile entered the cave to deal with the Kinrath infestation, a task requested by Zeron, the militia leader. While cleaning out the cave, the companions faced off against a Kinrath matriarch who attacked on sight. After killing the creatures, Surik and Kryon noticed that Revan had once entered the same cave and that it was filled with unique crystal formations that contained lightsaber crystals. There are a good num- a number of good Adagan crystals to be had, but there's also a special crystal that is personally bonded to Surik. Kryon notes this is an incredibly rare occurrence, though it is quite similar to how kyber, circles, kyber crystals are treated in the new canon. Those two facts are unrelated, but it's interesting. The jewel Surik finds is a power crystal that grows in strength as Surik's connection to the Force grows and is attuned to both her abilities and her alignment. Depending on the Exile's build and alignment, when the crystal is recovered, the bonuses can vary between charisma, dexterity, strength, and even bonus damage. The crystal also changes color depending on alignment. Light side players receive a white crystal, while dark side players get a dark onyx crystal, and each has variable brightness ranging from blinding to opaque. Based on all of this, there are 47 different bonus color and brightness combinations available at any one time, and they change with the character over time. So we don't know what properties Cirque's crystal had, except that it was white for a light side user. For we do know for certain it's the most powerful crystal in either KOTOR game. With all the additional crystals found in the cave, we can upgrade all the lightsabers we have and dole them out to companions. Somewhere in all of this, Michael finds time to contact Admiral Carthonassi to inform him that the exile had been found because he's also a Republic spy. (sighs) Getting sold out by our friends. 
I mean, it's Karth, you know, he's, he's a good boy, so it's fine. The Battle of Kunda plays out in multiple locations around the administrative building. As we said earlier, Askel's mercs outnumber the Kunda militia by more than four to one, which is a decided advantage, especially in such a small firefight. However, most of the side quests Surik is asked to perform directly involve preparing the administrative building for a mercenary attack. By Zeron's request, Surik performed a number of tasks, including healing some militia members and repairing damaged auto gun turrets that guarded the Kunda Plains. She also placed additional mines on the only bridge crossing over the small river on the other side of the compound from the guns. Cirque also jammed a malfunctioning back door into the armory so thoroughly that it took a year of maintenance to get it unstuck. We don't know what she did, but they can't say she didn't protect the compound from mercenaries. To bolster militia forces, Cirque convinced many locals to join and repaired and upgraded several battle droids. No helping Starcross lovers or sex droid side quest on Dantooine this time around. It's strictly business. The Kunda militia also has the benefit of information asymmetry because Azkul is relying on outdated intelligence from from before Cirque patched things up. Azkul's forces from, will attack from the Kunda plains on one side and across the narrow bridge on the other side. Azkul will lead one part of his forces while his senior commander, Dopak, will lead the other. Though an exact number of combats is unknown, it seems likely that the Battle of Kunda involved less than 500 fighters. Just to give you an idea of how intimate this game is supposed to be, there are only four named battles in the entire Sith Civil War. The first and second battles of the Onderon Civil War, the Battle of Kunda, and the Battle of Telos IV. Prior to the, the beginning of the battle, Vruklamar agreed to go out and delay the incoming militia forces, killing a few and allowing Surik the time to give a rousing motivational speech to the militia. It was later said that the speech gave courage to the militia and helped them win. Just like at Malachor V and Daxun, Surik turned a ragtag group into something more. This time, a, she turned them into a well-regulated militia, which was ne- indeed necessary to secure Dantooine. Even though Ozcool didn't know it, the battle was over before it began. As we said, his intelligence was bad, and that just fueled bad decision after bad decision. Believing the narrow bridge was only lightly mined, Ozcool sent his force across en masse, and they died as a large group, blown to nothing by the additional mines Surik planted. Somehow, the mines didn't destroy the bridge. On the opposite side of Kunda, Azkul sent the other half of his forces across the plains, believing there would be no militia presence there because the autogun turrets had been mistakenly firing at anyone, not just enemies. However, Surak repaired the turrets and many of Azkul's men were killed running across an open field under militia and turret fire. Always the classic blunders of strategy. Though the total amount is unknown, it seems likely that Azkul and Dopak lost at least half their forces just getting to the battlefield, and they didn't fare much better after arriving. Azkul didn't mind the casualties because he's a jerk, but also because he had it on good authority that the militia were cowardly with few real fighters. That was before the exile recruited new members, healed the injured, and repaired the droids. Melissa was much stronger than anticipated, and Azkul couldn't access the armory through the unlocked door because Surik had jammed it shut. No easy access to weapons was another blow to Azkul, and when his depleted forces finally met Surik, HK-47, Mira, Ruklamar, Zeron, and a fresh bunch of Melissa soldiers, they were obliterated. Though the militia did suffer a few casualties, the mercs were cut down in droves until only a few were left with Azkul and Dopak when they broke into the front door. Inside, Surik and Azkul met face-to-face with the merc trying to bribe his way out of the mess. Surik didn't accept and instead watched as Dopak turned on Azkul after making a secret agreement with Zeron. Some mercs defected with Dopak while the rest began fighting one another over Azkul, throwing their lives away. In the end, Azkul died with the rest of his loyal mercs trying to fight their way out of a hopeless situation. The Battle of Kunda was over and we will finish up all the aftermath next time. Thank you.
for listening to this episode of A People's History of the Old Republic. Next episode in the chronology, we will finally land on Andron and be there just long enough to briefly speak with Jedi Master Kavar and further entangle ourselves in the Andoran Civil War before moving on to Dantooine. Probably. Um, there will also be a episode um, in between the next one chronologically and our story in that one where we talk about the rise of Skywalker and that will again be spoiler heavy just as a heads up. Um, also, both Luke and myself were recent guests on the Podside Picnic podcast right. where we were talking various aspects of Star Wars. Give it a listen. I think they're pretty great episodes. Um, please rate, comment, and subscribe to Fotor on SoundCloud or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at FotorPod or email us at FotorPodcast at gmail.com. Send us questions and comments and we will answer them on the show. I'm Atherton KD on Twitter. And I'm Matt Luke is amazing on Twitter. Thank you again, and may the force be with you. <laughs>